2: This is Surprised by Grief. My name is Daniel Harrell. I'm Editor-in-Chief, Christianity Today. My wife Dawn died of pancreas cancer on Easter Sunday, 2019.
1: Hi, I'm Clarissa Mall. I am the wife and widow of Rob Mall, former CT editor and author. Rob fell to his death in July, 2019 in Mount Rainier National Park. I uh, I hang out on Instagram. That's where I am these days, Daniel. And I recently put out a an Instagram story. I've heard of, I've heard of Instagram. Oh, have you? Okay. <laughs> well, I uh, Facebook kind of scares me off, and Twitter is too <laughs> intense. So Instagram is happy. It's my happy place. And I put out an Instagram story recently for my uh, followers and asked them how does your church handle grief? You know, do they do it well? And little informal poll, 76% said, nope, they don't do it well. And I felt like, okay, we're not going to just leave this hanging here. I'm going to ask them, if you could tell your pastoral staff something about your experience of grief, what it's like to live with loss, what would you want them to know? And I found it really striking. A lot of people responded and nobody asked for programs. Nobody asked for you to start a ministry to grieving people at the church or to boost the casserole ministry. Um, Everybody asked for presence in one way or another. People asked to be remembered, to have folks come alongside them who didn't want to try to fix things, but would just walk with them. They wanted people to remember them after the year mark had passed. I found it really surprising, honestly, when uh, I read through their responses that, So much of it wasn't what, after, you know, almost 20 years in lay ministry, what I would have expected, I guess, before I lost Rob.
2: You know, it's interesting because, you know, having been a pastor for 35 years and, you know, been in those spaces where you're trying to come up with a grief program, I mean, I think, you know, your, your followers are exactly right that all of that stuff falls flat because when you're in the midst of grief there's just not a program that's going to make a difference and and I think what I found as a pastor is that you know when somebody needs that presence you're describing it is a kind of intentional switch that has to be made because you know we spend so much of our life as pastors in planning and organizing and really performing that when something happens where that intimate Personal presence is demanded—that real one-on-one showing up that you're describing—with not an intention to fix. It does require a a kind of shift, and I think probably for some pastors and maybe for some, especially larger churches, that's not an easy thing to do. Though I would I would say that even with with Dawn's cancer diagnosis, you know, I think the what do we do was still hard because. I mean certainly in our case being the you know quote unquote pastor's wife there was a kind of shock that set in but at the same time you know there's a kind of of humanity that we tap into whether it's an acquaintance with our own mortality or just sort of a baseline need that we intuit when these crises happen that does guide us and really I think is, in some sense, the best and the most beautiful of the way God has wired us to connect with one another. and I wonder sometimes that part of the challenge for churches is this sense that we've in our programming and efficiencies, kind of programmed some of that out, you know, because it's not streamlined, it's not efficient, you know, it's messy and it's emotional, and it's often unresolved and and doesn't tie up well and i think particularly in the american church that's often modeled on you know outcomes and and efficiencies that some of that programming glosses over what we could do if we were just left to be human a little more maybe
1: well you know i hearing what you say about programming and the sort of administrative flow that a lot of churches have i can't help but think about how the pandemic has shaken that whole thing up. And when I think about the churches that have supported me since my loss, they really knew how what to do when the pandemic struck, which I think is kind yeah. of amazing because it stripped away all of the Wednesday night, the Sunday night, the weekend programming. There was nothing more you could do except to reach out to, you know, people person to person. And I was amazed to see that care for us really became life-giving and comforting when all of the other things were stripped away. And I wonder, you know, we're all going to be coming out of uh, a pandemic in the next few months and years and looking, I think, I hope, at how um, this season of quarantine really has affected the way our church bodies function And I wonder if now's a good time to just go back to the drawing board a little bit and say, okay, what have we learned in the isolation of the last year and a half? What can we do better here? What have we learned about folks' felt needs? What have we learned about what works well and what doesn't work well? What works well for people who are in crisis? And I wonder if it's just a creative moment for us as the church to be able to say, Okay, we've learned some stuff here about what it means to walk with people who are grieving, and this is going to change how we do church from here on out.
2: Yeah, that's, that sparked so many thoughts for me. I, as you were talking, was thinking back to that simple book that Eugene Peterson wrote years ago, working the angles where, you know, he always insisted in his advice to pastors that that our work should really keep to that simple space of scripture, prayer. You know, in in leading worship and that we when we step into these things that pastors are often expected to do in this day and age, whether it's, you know, running small businesses or, you know, creating these programs that position us to grow and to have a kind of influence and legitimacy that perhaps we feel is hard to have in a day and age when you know pastors aren't as uh, adored as we used to be i wonder in resetting if it's not just a reexamination of how we do church and programming but pastoral vocation itself you know one of the things i loved most about that season of my life was the honor i enjoyed at at being with people in their most difficult crises and it wasn't so much that i was more equipped to do that than others But that people had the expectation that in these moments, especially of death, where, you know, all of those large questions about life and death and identity and afterlife come barreling forward, what people often want is that spiritual person, that sort of official spiritual person, be it a pastor or chaplain. And, you know, you you just hate that. It takes those crisis moments for those conversations to ensue. Why is it we can't be at that level of life always as Christians and churches?
1: I love that. I mean, especially when I think about the priesthood of all believers and I think about our call as every Christian to function in that way for one another not simply you know it's not just a pastor's role and i think about pastors who i have worked with and known closely and the rate of burnout emotional burnout and administrative burnout that they often suffer from because there's so much put on their shoulders and i think oh this if it's all about worship and the word and prayer we can all do that we can all become equipped to walk beside Mm -hmm. each other in those places of darkness, you know, the valley of the shadow, we can all learn to do this well. Maybe if we just cast aside some of these extra things that in this moment of real global crisis and global grief, we've realized actually um, drag us down or hold us back. They don't equip us to the real work that the gospel calls us to in, especially in times of need.
2: So, so go back to your Instagram followers for a second, because, I, you know, I think that all of this definitely makes sense when we're, like you just said, in those moments of need or when we are faced with loss and with grief. But I think part of what you and I have learned in the ongoing aftermath of our losses is that grief is not episodic, you know, that it is in some sense ongoing and continual Uh, You call it a companion. Um, Metaphors aside, you know, back to your Instagram followers and thinking about these things we need in those moments of loss and grief. But how do they work when we're not in that space? Because this genuineness, this depth, this authenticity that grief invites, I don't know. I feel like that's something that churches should be about all the time.
1: Well, I'm with you. I think that's great. You know, and I think about the emphasis on lament that has become our our song as the church over the last year and a half. And I think, oh, I hope that when folks are vaccinated and and the states are opened again and we go back to quote unquote normal life, that we don't forget to lament because we're going to need to keep doing this. Like This is a theme of scripture. This is throughout the life of the church. Um, this is not episodic and it's not episodic in the church year and it's not episodic in the lives of real people too. I think when I think about my Instagram followers and, and how I connect with them, I never want to give them the sense even almost two years out from Rob's death that I am finished with this. And I think sometimes that's hard to articulate because hope and joy draw us forward, but we still carry those wounds with us and um, living in that that messy middle is a hard place for a church that's trying to tell a story. <laughs> you know, we have this craving for completion in the way that we tell the gospel story and I think Sometimes for grieving people, it can feel as though um, the sadness is episodic—that we're done with that now and we move on to Easter. You know, we we finish with Lent and we move on to Easter. But the church certainly reminds us that none of this is episodic. So you know, this makes me think about then the call of pastors and and ministry leaders then to press into this a little bit, right? Um, We're never going to become better at caring for those in our congregations unless we actually face this thing that nobody wants to face. So there's got to be somebody within our churches who steps forward and says, no, your spiritual life will be richer. The gospel will be sweeter if we face this thing. And I'm going to lead the way and talk about this. So I wonder if you could talk about, you know, as a pastor, what would be your vision for for educating the church about death and dying. Like, what could this look like to get from where we're at right now to where grieving people say they need us to be? We've got to educate, right? We've got to change something about, you know, maybe it's uh, less emphasis on programming and ministries and more people focus. But I think there's also an educational layer there where um, we've got to talk about this more. So as a pastor, what would you envision that to look like?
2: Yeah. Okay. So look, where do we talk about death right now? We talk about it in hospitals where it's like, don't die. And then once you're going to die, you talk about it in hospice where, you know, everything is is on a downslope. And so there like aren't other places in our, our culture where this language is welcome, really except for in, you know, religious spaces. And here we are as Christians with the supreme narrative when it comes to death, you know, why is it we we don't allow that to be more front and center? Well, because we're afraid of it. We we don't like what it portends. We, you know, mm-hmm. we all talk about that. Well, I know I got to die. I just hope it's quick and et cetera, et cetera. But I think with, you know, what I saw in my wife's dying that was so profound right after she got her diagnosis, uh, she remarked how she'd been preparing her whole life for this, by which she meant her whole Christian life, her whole grounding, you know, in the gospel and in the hope of the death and resurrection of Jesus had prepared her to do this thing that we all must do. And she was willing to accept that this is part of what God has woven into the human experience. And, you know, if the philosophers and the poets and all who have commented and examined the human experience, the psychologists are right, then this is the defining aspect of the human experience that casts a a hue on everything else. And so why do we not, as Christians, you know, weave it into everything that we teach and preach and lead, given that it is, you know, something that we are equipped to talk about yeah so there there's my sermon that.
1: <laughs> well you know i think i mean rob wrote the art of dying when we were yes, right in right, right, our right. early 30s and we had little kids at home a baby and two toddlers and he felt really strongly that Christians needed to re envision what it meant to die well in the church. And um,
2: where did that come from? Like, where did that sense that he had to write that book at that age and that stage of life, like, where did that sense you're describing right now initiate?
1: Well, I think it was a constellation of things. Uh, first, he was mm. reporting for a CT on the Terry Shivo case. So mm. there was all of that political conversation around euthanasia at the time and right to die and where Christians stood politically and ethically on that. And then also uh, his great aunt was dying of cancer and we visited her together, he and I, and he recounts in his book that he felt wholly inadequate to offer any care to her, anything of substance as she lay in her hospice bed in her little Chicago apartment dying. And... Um, You know, through his experience as a hospice volunteer and working at a funeral home, he learned that his visits to her, that had been enough. That it wasn't the words that we said or the presents that we brought or the distractions that we offered that really gave light and hope and life to someone in their dying days, but it was our presence that mattered most but all of those things made him notice as he looked around for resources that the church was kind of the contemporary church was really bereft of of support for for people like him and then for all of these people that he was encountering through his work and even in his personal life you know when i think back to how rob's work and his writing on preparing to die helped me it didn't start with big theological conversations. And maybe that's kind of an Mm -hmm. entry point perhaps for churches too and congregations to say, okay, this is big. This is really big to wrap our heads around the reality of death and all that it means to be made of dust. And so let's start with really little practical steps. I remember the night Rob and I sat down in our apartment in um, the Chicago suburbs, and he said we needed to get life insurance. We had just had our first baby and I was kind of like, no, we've got time, you know, neither of us is dying anytime soon. And he insisted, no, we needed to get a life insurance policy. So we started there. Okay. We get the life insurance policy. Then he starts working in hospice and he decides we need to talk about our end of life issues and wishes because- He's seeing family who are disputing whether to continue offering support or to transition to palliative care. And so we start there. And you know, through all of these little conversations, we're starting to build a fluency in talking about death and dying. That all of those years later, 10 years later, when the chaplains show up at my campsite and say, He's gone. I could never have been prepared for that, and yet I was prepared. Mm. I had a sense of what should happen next in the material things, and it gave me space to wrestle with and reckon with the big theological things that I think, you know, in a lot of ways, we'll just have to place into, into the hands of God and trust and say, okay. I don't understand all of what this means to be mortal and to know that my days are measured out <laughs> before one of them has come to be. I don't know how to how to reckon with that, especially when I see my child is dying or my husband dies too soon or, you know, whatever that is, I see a, a loved one waste away from a disease that is just um is devastating, but I have something I can do. I don't need to just sit in in despair, theological despair, I can start with these little things and slowly work up my way up to the big stuff.
2: Yeah, I like that. Your words also got me thinking about how in the Christian um, space, when we think about death, it's so tied to love, right? Mm -hmm. That God so loved the world, he sent Jesus to die for it. And of course, Jesus' own words of greater love, you know, as no one than to lay down your life. And thinking about, you know, Dawn and her dying, you know, what she wanted and, and what she felt most intensely that she would communicate was this this kind of clarifying sense of of love, whether love of God, love of her family. And so there's there's like this mystical reality in there, right? That to somehow see in our dying, in our death, not a it's not just a narrative of loss and, and absence, but a narrative of intensity that really is built out of this christian experience of love that is definitely present in all of that and even in our grief i've you know we've said a lot of times that grief is a direct function of love and if it weren't for love we wouldn't grieve and grief just brings all of that to the forefront and focuses it and intensifies us and i think carries us you know in important ways and somehow again the for the church to tap into that and it's worship, and it's teaching, and it's care, I I just think is so powerful for us to do.
1: Yeah, I think about when babies are born, you know, you bring your Mm -hmm. baby to church for the first week, and there's this long line of women with itchy hands, (laughs) just Mm -hmm. waiting to get their hands on your new baby. And there's this urgency, this um, attraction that people have to new babies and new life. We're just, I think it's, that love that you talk about that we feel it. We are drawn to these little ones. And I would love to see the church have that same instinct toward people who are dying or who are grieving Mm. that we can't wait to get close to them. We, instead of running away, being afraid, not knowing what to say, we want to get close. And, and I think that's going to take some of that generosity of spirit, both for grieving people and, and those who try to support them to um, be willing to be manhandled a little bit <laughs> in those days and hours as we try to love each other well. But I think it's possible. And if we see the glory of uh, new life and resurrection in birth and baptism we can see those same things when we draw near to people who are dying and grieving too
2: I was I was thinking too as you were talking about how in congregations as i think of especially our older members just their willingness to linger and be present with one another in ways that you know younger members and folks with kids would scurry out the door after worship and you know our older members would just sit down and would just sit by each other and would often touch one another and maybe grab a hand as they would talk and share their week. And I remember just sitting and and watching and sometimes participating in that and thinking how how beautiful that was and how essential that was. Uh that even though I, you know, maybe just see you this one time a week, you know, again, as I was saying earlier, that time when it's sort of infused with love just can intensify and become so So powerful and important. I hear from our older members, especially, that's what they've missed so much during these pandemic days is that capacity to talk and connect in those very tactile ways.
1: Oh, I love that. And, you know, Rob and I always uh, looked for intergenerational churches when we were looking Mm -hmm. for places to worship in each of the places we lived. And um, just this last Sunday at church, it was so beautiful. You know, we're there and it's, distanced and masked and (laughs) so different from the way that it had always been. And the pastor stood up to celebrate a woman in the congregation who was turning 97 that day. And there she was. Uh, She had been a longtime member of the church, and we all celebrated her birthday together in the service. And, And there up in the balcony is the youth pastor with her brand new baby. And I just Mm -hmm. thought in that moment, this is what it is to be the church. The church is not obsessed with youth. We are not uh, searching for that next anti-aging serum. We are content with our mortality, knowing that our hope is in Christ. And so we can celebrate old age just as much as we can celebrate new birth. Mm. So I got to ask, okay, we're going to do this well. What would be a starting place for pastors, would you say? You know, if somebody's listening in and they say, I want to I wanna integrate this kind of a, a feeling more into my church, I want us to be people who are driven by that kind of love that you describe, where's a place to start?
2: Yeah, you know, I think part of our training as pastors— um it's sort of done departmentally or by discipline. And so you've got your theology, you've got your church history, you've got your preaching, you've got your then pastoral care. And, you know, your pastoral care is, you know, never considered as as high a calling as the sermon and the exegesis. And so those classes which you take are, are never taken as, as seriously as the other. So I think it begins with a a revisioning of the vocation as a vocation of caregiving, that care happens not only in the context of hospital visits and home visits and nursing homes and counseling with people in crisis, but in those other spaces too, you know, that as we teach and preach and lead Bible studies, that there is a kind of care that we're we're offering to people that it needs to always be front and center. That you know, the person who listens most intently to the sermon is often the person who's had a very difficult and trying week and needs something from God, and is looking for that to emerge. You know, in that worship space. So that shift in attitude, I, I think, is important. But still, at the same time, I think for those of us in pastoral ministry who are leading churches, we've got to rediscover the joy of caring for others in those hard spaces. Um, you know, I'm, I'm of that pastoral ilk where, you know, you're busy or, you know, again, running all of these programs and managing all these structures and staff. And then you get, you know, the interruption from the person who is lost, whether it's health or a loved one. And there is that moment where you're like, oh, Do I need to go be there to pray with them? Can I just pray from my desk, you know, because I have so much to do, but then you go and you're there and you do it and you're like, Hey, that was just the most rewarding Mm. part of my day. (laughs) And why do I forget this? Like, why is it that I struggle with being inconvenienced when, you know, I have this honor to go and sit alongside someone and they're just so appreciative of not just the things I say, but of the showing up and of the, they're just open, you know, to the ministry. I used to always tell my folks that in the seminary students I taught, I was like, I always loved funerals more than I loved weddings because of the ministry I got to do because of the openness that the people had to the the core of the gospel, the, the new life that is ours, even in the face of death of loss and so a long way to answer but i think a recapturing of joy and just a rethinking of the way in which we train ourselves and each other as pastors to see that care really runs across you know all of the aspects of our work
1: i love that it makes me think of the pastor as shepherd you know that mm-hmm. administrative role but also the shepherd is the one who carries lambs and what an honor to be tasked with that
2: Well, and the irony, of course, is that, you know, a lot of this core work that really what brought a lot of us into pastoral ministry is being sort of uh, outsourced to organizations like hospice and others that do beautiful work. But, you know, what we have is pastors, I mean, hospice shows up, and I'm a hospice volunteer myself, hospice shows up, you know, in the last moments, whereas for pastors, you know we, for some people, have an opportunity to be there for entire lives. And I've always appreciated how in Catholic liturgy, you know, the funeral vestments are, are draped with white instead of black to sort of talk about the fulfillment of baptism. And just that reminder of life as this full arc in the eyes of God that, you know, even when we're baptized as children, there is a baptism into the death of Jesus that in time becomes our death to the point that when we die, we have, you know, finally fulfilled that to which our baptism ultimately, you know, pointed.
1: I love that. I just listening to you, I think, oh, Rob and Don are enjoying that now. I don't know. I just, I can't help but kind of get choked up thinking about that, that I need to hear that over and over again. I need to hear that truth and And it gives me comfort and a sense of peace in releasing him to God and I would love to hear more sermons talk about that. You know, since Rob died, the last verse of every hymn that talks about the coming glory, that's the one that right, sends right. me to tears every single time. I make mean, my kids know now in church, like, oh, there's mom, she's gonna cry again. This is the fourth, fourth verse of the hymn. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't help it. I need that. You know, after all of the sadness, I need to be drawn to that gospel of hope again. And boy, I appreciate those last verses of hymns that continually bring me to that place every week in worship. In Rob's memorial service, uh, we had a graveside committal service, and then we had a larger memorial funeral service. And in the bulletin, I put this quotation from Adoniram Judson. He says, I am not tired of my work, neither am I tired of the world. Yet when Christ calls me home, I shall go with gladness. Amen. Amen. Hi, I'm Clarissa Mall, one of the hosts of Surprised by Grief, and today I'm thrilled to welcome writer and author Dave Muir to the show. Dave and his wife, Dale, cared for Dale's mom, Karn, until her death from Alzheimer's. And uh, in reflection, Dale wrote a book called New Every Day, Navigating Alzheimer's with Grace and Compassion that was published by Ravel in 2008. And I am just looking forward to our conversation today, Dave, and uh, tapping into your wisdom, hard-won wisdom, and hearing your story. Thanks for joining me today.
0: Thanks for the invitation. Appreciate it.
1: Well, Dave, I know uh, you're here to talk about grief, but I want to take a step back as we begin and jump back to when before the grief began. And I'd love for you to tell us about your mother-in-law, the woman that she was and the woman that you loved uh, through the years.
0: Yeah, she was. Karen was a delightful woman. She was a nurse. She prided herself on that. You know, mother to multiple grandchildren, and she was the kind of person who would, you know, fly to Asia and care for orphans on the way back to the United States, and donate to the Salvation Army and work for the Salvation Army, and just a sweet, sweet person. And it was a long, slow journey in losing her, but a lot of good memories with a really sweet person who loved God and loved other people.
1: I love that. I wonder, you know, when did you notice things were changing for Karn that she just wasn't quite the woman that you had always known?
0: There's little telltale signs. And at first you just think, oh, well, you know, she's getting older. So I noticed mail stacking up on the table and that was not usual for her. And I got a little concerned one day, I just took a peek at her checkbook and it kind of looked like modern art on the inside, you know, it was like things were not recorded. It was kind of scribbled around. I thought, okay, there's a problem here. And and my wife had been playing Scrabble with her mom. They loved doing that and Karen spelled a seven-letter word but not connected to anything at all. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, getting lost, calling, you know, she'd been driving around for hours and like, "Dale, I'm just trying to get to Safeway and I I'm by the side of the road and I can't and I don't know where I am and I need some help and I don't know what's happening." So those were the tip-offs. And then it was a 10-year journey. It was a very long process with her. It's a slow, inexorable march.
1: How did that make you feel at the beginning? I mean, were you just kind of trying to uh, sort of dismiss it, or did you start to have this nagging sense that this would be your journey together for a long time?
0: No, I think we got it pretty quick. There wasn't any denial on our part. There was sadness, uh, and it was confirmed. You know, yeah, you've, you've got had alzheimer's Uh, we lost her last year so honestly the most difficult part was the earlier part when she was aware of what she was losing she had always been this strong you know independent woman take charge she was a charge nurse you know instructing other nurses and she knew what was happening and she just bristled at it but she also really resisted help and that was hard but As time went on, you know, she would be more willing to accept help. And we we could see the direction this was taking and that this was going to be, this was going to upend our life. And suddenly you're running someone else's life. A lot of hard issues to deal with in the middle of the fact that you're grieving the the loss. You're starting to lose someone.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of... uh Shakespeare's The Ages of Man, you know, sands eyes, sands teeth, sands everything, that there's this slow fading. And I think for the people it sounds like who are closest to her, that reckoning, you you have to reckon with that pretty quickly. But I wonder about her community, her friends, uh, your church community. Were other people kind of on the same page with you about the trajectory of this? Or did you sense that other people had a different view of her diminishing?
0: I think people got it, but the the troubling thing, and honestly, one of the most difficult things, was people vanishing. Mm. And there's just something difficult. I think for other people, and and I even, you know, it got to a point where someone said, "Well, she doesn't recognize me anyway, so why does it matter?" And it's like, well, because you could be this wonderful, nice stranger that shows up that has a lot in common. Like, oh, you like blueberry pie, so do I, you know? And so a lot of people just kind of dropped off the radar screen, and I think that is one of the pleas i would make to you know people who are walking alongside someone who is losing someone don't shy away just because this person may not know you anymore or may mistake you for someone else and it can be awkward and the conversations i understand can get awkward people think that they need to keep it on track or make sense of it or correct it's like you're not going to remind this person of anything and Don't try to have shared memories because that puts burdens on them. You know, hey, remember when we like, nah, she probably doesn't. So what you can do is in the moment you can say, isn't this rose lovely? Because that doesn't require any memory. Or you can talk about tomorrow I'm going to go to the museum, you know, or would you like to go with me? Simple questions that don't reference the past, you know, are something people can do. And they just need to know that there are creative options to deal with someone they love who's slipping away.
1: Oh, I love that. You know, my husband wrote The Art of Dying uh, 10 years before his death, and he talked about how uh, attending to dying people is not something that we need professional uh, skill to do. We simply need the gift of presence. We need to offer them the gift of our presence. And it's not the words we say. We don't have to get it right. It's just showing up consistently over time that is the thing that matters most. And I'm sure that there's complexity, too, with even having family who's far away. Uh, you know, folks come in and they see a dramatic diminishing where you have seen a slower process. of. What was that like, just even communicating with your broader family about what was happening in her life?
0: Yeah, it could be shocking to them. And we also found this situation where, like, they would be on the phone with her and she could kind of do okay sometimes like navigate a conversation okay and sound pretty good and so we would sound like you know we were overstating things or you know we need to get a grip and calm down she's doing fine and have that kind of reaction until they came up and saw it you know and and it's like well we're seeing something that you're not seeing you need to trust us on this
1: yeah, I think that's really helpful for all of us who love from afar. I'm wondering all along through all of this caregiving and this slow goodbying that you're doing every day. Where was your church in all of this? How did you feel like the response was from your faith community? Uh, how did they show up or not? I guess in the years of caregiving.
0: So Karen had been in the Salvation Army for a long time and we did not attend the Salvation Army Church, but she did. So we would take her to her church as often as we, as long as we could. And they were great with her and they were patient and the pastor was wonderful and people were just patient and good. And we're in a really big church, bad on us, I, you know, I tend to be more of an introvert and I tend to be the person who frankly doesn't reach out very well. So we did a lot of this on our own, we had close friends who understood and we could talk to. And my wife, who's far more social than I, had a really good friend who had gone through Alzheimer's with her mom. And that was really good, really important to have someone who gets it, who's been there, and who could give us really good advice, like enjoying what you can, enjoying the opportunities you still have, rather than focusing relentlessly on what you've lost or losing. Is a really helpful thing to do.
1: I love that. And I wonder, um, you know, running underneath all of that kind of uh, enjoy today and focus on what is and not what isn't, what is undergirding you through all of this?
0: Well, you can't be Pollyanna ish and you can't pretend that the bad thing isn't the bad thing. And You should grieve your losses. If you're not grieving this, there is something wrong. You shouldn't be running away completely from the pain of this difficult thing. And we are evangelicals. We believe the Bible. We believe that God is omnipotent and can do whatever he wishes. We also live in a world that is fallen and broken. And usually, the norm is that the bad things continue and the divine intervention. To us, seems like a, a rare thing. Um, the Red Sea does not part every day. Can an omnipotent being do whatever an omnipotent being wants to do? Yes. And for some reason, in this world, you will have tribulation. This is not heaven on earth, and hard things happen. And so, we may not have access to the desire of our heart for someone to just get better and for broken things to be healed. We do have unlimited access to grace, and we have unlimited access to the comfort of God, which often comes not in some supernatural thing, but sometimes the touch of God comes in very, what look like ordinary ways, other people. um, I would have done better. We probably would have done better had we done more to surround ourselves with a helpful circle. So that would be a big lesson learned is uh, reach out more.
1: Yeah. Well, and we've been talking a lot about anticipatory grief, you know, what comes before the time our loved one passes away. But I want to pivot now. And because Karn didn't live, she wasn't miraculously healed. And your grief still continues, right? Uh, It's changed shape since her death. How have you noticed that that has shifted? What did it look like for you soon after her death? And what does it look like for you now?
0: You know, when a lot of your life has been oriented around caring for another person, and much of this burden, you know, was borne by my wife. I wrote the book, but it was about our shared experience, but really, it's about my wife. So suddenly, there was this feeling it's kind of like with the empty nest. It's sort of like that. It's like i this is who I have am. This is what I've been doing for this long time. and suddenly this I'm missing this person and, and what do I do now? Um, this is someone you love. This is someone who's been a part of your life and you miss. And sometimes, you know, even though you believe, questions do arise. And I think the core issue in life is God trustworthy and is God good. I will confess that I can get into a dark place when I'm sad and i can start to think you know it starts with you know well if i was god which really when you really dig into that what that means is if i was god i would do a better job i would make different choices and when you say different what you mean is better but i find myself going there and we want to answer like wh- why why does a wonderful person like current like why Why Alzheimer's, why this slow and horrible and then she's bedridden, she can't move. And it's like, we can't answer that. We need to let go of needing to have the answer, demanding the answer, making up an answer, trivializing, you know, Okay, so there is a decision involved to let life play out in a certain way, and I want to stick with what I know and live where I know something, instead of speculate about what I don't know. And what I know is that God loves us, Jesus came, he wasn't playing games, he experienced the depth of human suffering, and he's going to take us to be with himself someday. I gotta live there.
1: That's right. Yeah, well, I certainly commend our listeners to your resource, New Every Day, navigating Alzheimer's with grace and compassion. Um, I think it's going to be a great support to uh, folks who are walking the same road. And um, I've got to ask you. I ask our guests when they join us uh, because our name is Surprised by Grief, a spinoff on uh, C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy. What in your grief journey has surprised you? Where have you found in breakings of God? Presence or discover things you didn't know before.
0: Um, this has made us better people, and I don't—I don't know that I was expecting that.
1: Mm.
0: But it um, sometimes what the things that we want. I can be rather shallow, but you know, as far as uh, God wants us to be deeper, better, more like Him, and left to my own devices i probably wouldn't go real deep but when you sacrifice when you choose to like not run away from a problem you just become deeper slash better it's more christ-like so suffering and helping and just orienting your life i had to overcome that yeah i had to overcome some immaturity and you are learning to be more in tune with the heart of god who went way out of his way when we had a problem yeah he can and does use suffering to mold us transform us so i totally acknowledge the hardship but we get to choose a lot about how we're going to respond and who we are going to be and very often we will we'll know what the right thing to do is. It's like, yeah, hmm, I'm reading about this right thing to do and we have to step into it. And when we do step into it, you're also stepping into grace.
1: That's beautiful. Yeah. Suffering and encountering death and grief. It gives us that choice, right? To either calcify, um, become more potent and the person that we were, or to cling to Jesus and let our suffering become a refining fire. So, um, yeah. Good words. Good words, Dave. Thank you again for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Dave Muir, the author of New Every Day, Navigating Alzheimer's with Grace and Compassion.
0: Hey, thanks very much for having me on the show.
1: Jesus, when you gonna wake up?
0: When you gonna wake up and calm this raging sea?
1: Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate it, and leave us a review in iTunes. If you have feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. Surprised by Grief is a production of Christianity Today. It's produced by Mike Cosper. It was written by Daniel Harrell and Clarissa Mall. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Our music is by the Porter's Gate. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon.
0: So Jesus, when you gonna wake up, when you're gonna.